Psalm 136 is what we're going to look at this morning. See you guys. <laughs> this psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 136, is a psalm that was most likely used during Passover. The congregation would responsively read this. So they would come together in the temple in Jerusalem there, and, and the reader would stand up and read the first part of each verse, and then the congregation would respond with an exuberant, excited, joyful statement saying, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is a psalm where that is repeated in each verse. Repetition. It's repeated in each verse. And so this morning, in order for us to get used to this passage, this psalm, I've invited Bob to come, and he's going to read the first section, and then we are going to respond as a congregation with that statement, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, your translation may say it differently, so I invite you maybe to look up here on the screen and follow along with the screen. We're going to read the bold print as the congregation, and Bob is going to read the first part. So why don't you stand as we do this together? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spreads out the earth above the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. For his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the mists of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites. 
For his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. For his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their hands as a heritage. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembers us in our low estate. For his steadfast love and rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. You can be seated. I heard some of you saying that very excitedly and exuberantly. I know that was a lot. You should have that memorized by now, right? For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, there is no other passage of Scripture or chapter in Scripture like it. It is one of a kind. It comes within the section of the Psalms known as the Hillel or the Hallelujah part of the Psalms. And some have said, and I believe rightly so, that Psalm 136 is the great Hillel par excellence. It stands alone in what it says about God and in its call for us to give thanks. What's amazing is, is this is a passage of Scripture where there is no author given. Many have supposed that King David wrote it, and it probably would make sense since King Solomon used portions of Psalm 136 when he dedicated the temple, the first temple, We know that King Jehoshaphat, he had singers go out in front of the army as they were defending themselves against three different kings. And he had those singers in the front proclaiming, for his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Amazing. What an incredible way to go out to battle. His steadfast love endures forever. As you've noted Each verse emphasizes that. Each verse talks about the steadfast love of God, and that takes center stage in this psalm. And it it, it comes by a Hebrew word, chesed. I practiced long and hard to get my ch right, but it is chesed. In fact, I I had a computer little thing that I could click on, and it would make, you know, uh, give the, the way to pronounce it, and that's what it was, chesed. You can't do it too much or else you end up, you know, things you don't want to be doing. Um, but you have to have it in there. So chesed. Chesed is one of those Hebrew words, though, that we have no English word that just really addresses it. So your translations might use mercy or loving kindness or his everlasting love. Different translations will translate it differently. And really the reason is because there's no one English word. There are three core ideas in the word chesed. First of all, it does speak about God's love. It has to do with his love. John the Apostle in 1 John tells us that God is love. And Chesed reminds us that God has love for his people. But then the question can be asked, is there anything that can get in the way of God's love? Is it possible that his love is just a mere sentiment? That he talks about loving us, but he can't really back it up? Well, no, that's where the second thought of chesed comes in see it's his strong 
love. There is no obstacle that cannot or that hinders anyone from the love of God. His love is a strong love. So we are talking about God's strong love. So that means that, that, that he can get through obstacles. But then we have to ask our question, well, is there ever a time when God withholds his love from us? You know, like a, a, a parent tries to manipulate their child by withholding love from them. Could that be true of our God? Well, no, because the third idea of chesed is that it is a steadfast love. So to say that his everlasting love or his steadfast love endures forever is speaking of God's strong and steadfast love. And this is repeated 26 times in this psalm. So obviously, chesed takes center stage. And and the psalmist wants us to understand this strong and, and steadfast love of God. But it also starts out three verses, which says, give thanks. Give thanks. I was just reminded uh, or thinking about this. The first time I came upon this passage of scripture uh, was at Thanksgiving when I was in high school. My whole family, my cousins, my aunts and uncles, and my grandparents all lived in Salem. And so Thanksgiving was a time for us to all get together, and we'd take turns each year going to different homes. And I remember, it must have been my junior or senior year of high school, it was going to be at our house. So my grandparents, my two sets of aunts and uncles, and my five cousins, and my family were all going to be there. And my dad came to me, and he said, Jeff... Would you read a passage of scripture for us? I was so honored. See, it was tradition for us to read scripture before we ate the meal and to then, then to pray uh, prayers of thanksgiving before we actually had that meal together. And my dad came to me and asked me to read the scriptures. I was, I was very honored, but I didn't know what to read. And so my dad suggested, what if you read Psalm 136 and you had us respond just like we did this morning? So this psalm has become very special to me because it does start out with that whole idea of giving thanks. The psalmist starts by saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. And then it's sandwiched in with thanksgiving because in verse 26, he ends with give thanks to the God of heaven. It's a thanksgiving song. And all the way through, there is this understanding that we are called to give thanks. Now, what you need to understand is the psalmist is not talking about an attitude here. What? What? He's not talking about an attitude of gratitude, as some have said. He's not talking about having the right heart. He is talking here about giving thanks verbally to God in a corporate setting. Remember how they used this? This was done in the temple. It was done in honor of Passover as they were reminded how God miraculously brought the Israelites out from under this slavery of the Egyptians. And and, and this was a time for them to give thanks vocally, verbally, out loud, together as a community. And it starts off with give thanks. Well, we must ask ourselves, why? (laughs) Why should we give thanks? You see, the truth is, some in this very place today may be in situations where it is hard for you to give thanks. 
Perhaps you're struggling financially. Maybe it's physical struggles. Maybe you have a wayward child. Maybe it's a relationship that has gone sour. And today you're saying, why should I give thanks? The circumstances in my life don't allow me to give thanks. But you also need to recognize that this passage says, give thanks no matter what. It's not saying give thanks unless your circumstances are bad. See, the psalmist comes to help us recognize that we give thanks in everything, not because of our circumstances or our situations. We give thanks in everything because of who God is. So what we see is there are four distinct descriptions of our God here. And these are reasons for us to give thanks. Give thanks for who he is. And I want to breeze through them fairly quickly. So hold on to your hat. I don't see anybody with a hat, so never mind. You don't have to hold on to your hat. But I want us to take a look at these because I really want to get to the end of our time. And Mona reminded me, remember, you want to go quick through the first part and then slow down at the end. So that's my desire, okay? We'll see if that happens. I'm a preacher after all, right, Jack? Jack's over there giggling. So we want to see four things, four, four truths, four character qualities of God that we are called to give thanks for. And the first is in verses 1 through 3 and also verse 26. And it is who he is. He is the sovereign one. Give thanks to God because he is the sovereign one. Notice the statements that are made here. Give thanks to the Lord, verse 1. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. And in verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. Now, these are somewhat synonymous, and they all tell us about God being a sovereign one. There's a little bit of distinction being made. When it says, give thanks to the God of gods, What the psalmist is saying is give thanks to the one who alone stands out above anyone else as the one true living God. See, see the truth is there were people in that day, there are people in this day who worship multiple gods. The sun, the moon, whatever. And this statement is saying even if there are people or things that could be you, you, you might be tempted to put the name God to. God is the one who is over them. He is the God of gods. And that says to you and me, when we are tempted to put people or things in the place of God, we need to be reminded this morning, no, no, no. He is the God over anything that we are tempted to look after and prioritize as God in our life. He is the God of gods. He is the sovereign one. But then he goes on and talks about not only his his sovereign or supreme deity, but also his absolute dominion. He is the Lord of lords. And notice in your scripture, in your text, the, the, the first Lord is capital and the second Lord is small case L, right? That says there might be people, there might be those that we have to look to as our master, as our boss. You know, in our world today, we have, we have dictators, we have rulers, we have masters, we have presidents, we have bosses, all these things that are, that are those that, that we need to understand have authority in our lives, placed there by God. But the scripture here is saying 
He's Lord over the lords. He's Lord over those who are in authority over us. He is far more authoritative than those that we might be tempted to call masters in our life. He is above and beyond. So to be sure, dear church, we are called as followers of Jesus Christ to recognize the authorities, to submit ourselves to the authorities, But in so doing, let us always remember that the Lord of lords has placed them over us. He is the one we worship. He is the sovereign. And then verse 26 is a very interesting term. It is only used one time in the Psalms. He is the God of heaven. Ezra uses that term nine times. We see it four other times in the Old Testament. And it's not till we get to Revelation. And only two times there do we see this title of God, the God of heaven. What's amazing about this is this reveals to us how much he is sovereign over. In other words, he's not just sovereign over the United States. He's not just sovereign over the whole world. He's not just sovereign over the stars and the moon and the world. He's sovereign over everything because he is God of heaven. He created heaven, and now he rules over heaven and earth. He is the sovereign one. And the psalmist calls us to praise him, to give thanks to this one who is the sovereign one for his steadfast love. It endures forever. Give thanks to this one who is sovereign. But then he goes on and he, and he talks about God not just being the sovereign one, but God being the all-wise, all-knowing creator. Notice verse 4. To him who alone does great wonders. To him, I'm, I'm skipping the for his steadfast love endures forever because I think you've got that idea. But notice verse 5, to him who by understanding made the heavens, verse 6, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, verse 7, to him who made the great lights, verse 8, the sun to rule over the day, and verse 9, the moon and stars to rule over the night. Now the psalmist takes us to this understanding that he is creator God. And if, if we were, uh, and we do, we understand that this reference is all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where we hear that God spoke everything into existence just by his mere word. That's how powerful he is. And we have the second, third, and fourth day listed here for us. When he made the lights, when he made the, uh, when he made the, excuse me, he spread out the earth above the waters, he, day two. He, he made the great lights, day three. And he made the sun and the moon and the stars, day four forth. And and, and so we see the days of creation being listed here. But notice what he says at the beginning of this understanding. He has done great wonders, verse 4. There are people, and I, I applaud them, there are people who study the universe. I, I, that blows my mind. There are people who look at the stars and, and, and know all of this things, the stuff about the stars. And I was going to try to impress you this morning by giving you some facts, but you know what? I'm not going <laughs> to. But this says that God created it, and it is wonderful. It, it, is, it is beyond human understanding. And in fact, I would say to you that the more we learn about the universe, the more questions it brings. The more we hear and understand God's creation, the more wondrous it becomes to us. 
God created him. But notice in verse 5, he created by his understanding. That is, his all-knowing, his wisdom, his, we call it, omniscience, that he is all-knowing. God created everything that we see, and even those that we don't, those things we don't see, he created it. It is wonderful, and it is done through his all-knowing omniscience. Amazing. Give thanks to God, not only because he's the sovereign one, but because he is the all-wise, all-knowing creator. But then he goes on, and now he starts talking about a specific time in history, a time that these people had gathered together to celebrate the Passover. And now he talks in verse 10 about Egypt and what took place in Egypt. So verse 10, he says, To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, verse 11, and brought Israel out from among them, verse 12, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, verse 13, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, Verse 14, and made Israel pass through the midst of it. Verse 15, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. And verse 16, to him who led his people through the wilderness. Not only is he the, the sovereign one and the all-wise creator, but now he is the strong redeemer. He is the strong redeemer. The psalmist takes the people back to that day when they were slaves in Egypt. They were under the bondage of the Egyptians. They were enslaved. And there was nothing but but death there. And so the psalmist reminds that while they were oppressed, while they were under that slavery, God chose to act. And he spoke to his servant Moses. And he said, Moses... I hear the cries of my people back in Egypt. I hear that they are burdened, that they are oppressed, and I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to get my people out. I want you to talk to Pharaoh. And you know the story. It took some doing before Moses agreed, and, and, and they go back. And, and God brings this series of ten plagues onto Egypt to help Pharaoh be convinced that he needs to release the people. And the 10th plague is mentioned in our passage, the death of the firstborn. The firstborn of all the Egyptians was finally put to death in one night. The Israelites, they were saved from that because they took the blood of a lamb and painted their doorposts with that blood, the blood of a sacrificed lamb. And God took his people out. He saved his people from that slavery, from that bondage that they were in there in Egypt. And and he shows God, the psalmist shows God then that that he is this strong redeemer. And not only did did he bring them out, but when they came across a barrier, the Red Sea, which was quite big, quite a huge barrier, The scripture reveals here that he sent his people across on dry land. He parted the waters. They walked across on dry land. And then when the Egyptians tried to follow them through, once they got in the middle, God allowed those, the, that water to rush over them, and they were gone. See, God is seen here as this powerful, this mighty redeemer who saved his people from the bondage of, of slavery. And then in the last verse, verse 16 of this, this section, he led his people through the wilderness. He led them. He redeemed them. 
He, he, he broke down barriers for them, and then he led them through the wilderness. He provided manna. He provided quail. He provided water from rock, a rock for his people. He is a God who, who, who cares about them. He redeemed them, and he led them through that wilderness for 40 years. This is who he says to give thanks for. Give thanks to our God. He is the sovereign one. He is the all-wise creator. And now he is the powerful redeemer. But he goes on. Because God wasn't finished with his people. He didn't just take them out from the land. He had a purpose for them. And now we see him as the gracious provider. Notice verse 17. To him who struck down great kings... Verse 18, and killed mighty kings. Verse 19, Sihon, king of the Amorites. Verse 20, and Og, king of Bashan. Verse 21, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. See, God didn't just redeem his people. He redeemed them to provide for them the land that he had promised to their forefathers. And so he took them out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness for 40 years, and when the time came, they started to march into the promised land and that he was going to give to them. He gave them this land as a heritage. He, he had promised it. And what's interesting is the two kings that are mentioned are kings that they battled against, not in the promised land, but outside the promised land. These were kings that were mighty and were great. And they were the first battles that, that the people who came out, who were redeemed from Egypt, they were the first battles that they encountered. And these were mighty kings. And they watched as God provided for them. And then it says God gave their land to his people as a heritage, as an inheritance. He is the one, God is the one, who showed himself as a gracious provider. So we've seen this, and we've gone through it quickly just as I've said. We have seen God. We are to give thanks because he is a sovereign God. He is the one who is a wise, all-knowing creator. He is the one who is a powerful and mighty redeemer, and he is the one who is a gracious provider. But that still leaves us with a question this morning, does it not? Does it? My question is this. These are great things to praise God with. I can worship God because of who He is, but why do I give thanks for these things? I mean, I can, I can give Him worship, right? Because He is the sovereign one. And I can come to Him in a heart of reverence and bow down before Him as my master, as my ruler. But why do I give thanks for that? See, I can come to him and I can look out upon the mountains and I can say, oh, this is so beautiful. And I can be reminded that the, that the creation displays the glory of God. And again, it causes my heart to sing praise to the one who is more beautiful than his creation. Amen. And I can give worship to the one who is my redeemer who not through the death of the Egyptian firstborn, but through the death of his own son redeemed me bought me with the precious blood of his son and I can give him praise and I can give him worship because he is my redeemer and as my provider certainly I can worship him there but how is it how is it that we give thanks for him in these things and I would give you one statement it's simply this 
Because all that he is, he is to us. All that God is, he is to us. See, what we're reading here, dear church, is true accounts of how God acted on behalf of his people, the Israelites. But everything he was to them, he is to us today. He is our ruler, not just a ruler. He is our creator, not just a creator. He's not just a redeemer, but he is our redeemer. He's not just a provider for certain people, but he is our provider. All that he is, he is to us. I've heard horror stories. Horror stories of kids who proclaim their parents are much different when they're around other people than when they're at home. Somebody in our teaching class, I won't mention his name, I won't even try to look at him, but he preached a great sermon and he titled it, What Goes On Behind Closed Doors? And this is what some students, when I was working with teens, they would say, my mom or my dad or, or maybe both of them are just mean and awful to me at home, but then we get out in public and they just seem so nice, so wonderful, so great, and everybody loves them, but you don't know what goes on at home, they would tell us. God is not like that, dear church. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And all that he is, he is to us forever and ever and ever. Amen. He is our sovereign, our creator, our redeemer. He is our provider. How do I know that? I love what the psalmist does in verse 23. He reveals that to us. He has been talking about Israel and God's relationship with Israel. He's been talking about creation and what God did with creation. But now he uses the term us. Notice verse 23. It is he who remembered us, us in our lowest state. Verse 24. And rescued us from our foes. Verse 25, he who gives food to all flesh, including us. See, all that God is, he is to us, the psalmist is saying. These aren't just great stories to tell your kids to, to speak of what God did back then. These are stories to tell your kids to remind them of how God relates to us even this day. All that he is, he is to us. So let's think about it. The psalmist says, he remembered us in our lowest state. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this. I have to be honest with you, I have. There have been times in my life where I feel like somehow the things I'm going through are kind of little and meaningless to such a great, grand, sovereign creator, God. That what I'm dealing with, certainly he's unaware of. Certainly he has no time for little old me. After all, I'm, I'm just a nobody here on this earth. And he's got millions and billions of people to deal with. What makes, him, what makes me think he'd be mindful of me? But the psalmist is helping us to understand all that he is, he is to us. And he remembers us. Whatever you're going through today, he knows it. 
He is fully aware of the hurts that are going on in your heart, even this moment. He knows the struggles you're facing. He understands, and more than anybody else understands, probably even more than you understand, because he remembers us. It's interesting. It's interesting. Whoever wrote this psalm certainly would have recognized that when, when talking about Israel, in, in, let me make sure I get this reference right, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, God, God reminds Israel that they were nothing special when he chose them. They weren't the biggest nation. They weren't the most powerful nation, but he still chose them. He remembered them, and he chose them to be his people. And I believe that's what he's saying to us today. You may feel like you're nothing. You may feel like you're powerless. You may feel like you're just small and minute to God, but you need to know he remembers you in your lowest state. He knows. He remembers. But he goes on beyond that. Verse 24 says, he rescued us from our foes. God worked on behalf of his people, Israel, mighty ways. You think of Jericho and all sorts of stories like that where God worked in miraculous ways. But dear church, listen, all that he is, he is to us today. And he has rescued us from our greatest foe, which the Bible says is death. Death is our greatest foe. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Our greatest foe is death that comes as a result of sin. And the scripture reveals very clearly that there is no one who has not sinned. To put it in a different way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the the truth is that the penalty, the payment, the, the wages of that sin is death. Our greatest foe, dear church, is not physical death, because that's not what the Scripture is talking about. It's talking about spiritual death. Right now, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You are spiritually dead. You're the walking dead. Now, I've never watched that show. I want to go on record as saying that. I've seen advertisements for it, but I'm just trying to relate it to us today as I understand these zombies are dead, right? And they're walking. So that's what somebody who hasn't put their faith and trust in Jesus is. They're walking dead, spiritually dead. And the Bible very clearly speaks of a place called hell where those who reject Jesus Christ, do not receive him as their savior, will end up for all of eternity. And the bad part of that is not that there's going to be a limitless thirst, not that there's going to be heat, not that it's going to be excruciating. The worst part about hell, dear church, is it is separated from God completely. That's the worst part of hell. The scripture says we have an enemy and it's not one another and it's not the liberals or the conservatives, depending on what side of the place you fall. It's not anybody except death. Spiritual death is our foe. But guess what? God is our redeemer. He is our rescuer. He has rescued us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, my word. Church, we have much to be thankful for. We have a redeemer. We have a rescuer. 
But then finally, verse 25 says, He gives food to all flesh. He is our provider. He provides for us. Psalm 104 speaks about the animals, speaks about the birds and the stork and the lion and, and all the beasts of the, of the forest and speaks of all the creatures in the sea, the, the big and the small, and, 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 and speaks of the Leviathan. And then the psalmist says this in verse 27, These all look to you to give them their food in due season. God is the one who provides. God is the one. All that he is, he is to us today. He is our provider. How do I know that? Well, Jesus very clearly spoke of this. In, verse, uh, in Matthew 6, verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they God is our provider. Now, he might not give us abundantly at times, but he has promised to provide for us. He takes care of us. He he is the, the one who provides. And so what we need to recognize this morning, dear church, is all that God is, he is to us. That's the reason for thanksgiving. And it's not dependent upon our circumstance. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. All circumstances. How is it done? What is the foundation of that giving of thanks no matter what the situation we are in is? It's recognizing all that God is. He is to me. He is to you. He's our Lord. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. And he is our provider. So this morning, we come to recognize this truth. But if you knew anything about the names of God, you probably would have saved me a lot of time this morning. Because all that we've talked about is actually pointed out in the very first verse of this psalm. The very first verse gives us a name of God. Notice what it says. Give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good. Yahweh. Did you know that Yahweh is God's personal name with his people? It is a special name. It is a name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush when he said, I am. It is a name that speaks of who God is, but it's also a name that speaks of how he relates to his people. Who God is, I am, means he's the self-existent, eternal one. He is not dependent upon anyone or anything to exist. He exists apart from air, apart from food, apart from water. He does not need anything to exist. Therefore, he always has been and will always will be. He is the self-existent and he is the eternal one. But later on in Exodus 6, God reveals to Moses, he says, Listen, your forefathers, they knew me as God Almighty. But now... Now you and my people are going to know me as Yahweh, Yahweh the Lord, which says something about his relationship to his people. It says that he is covenant keeping. It says that he is faithful. 
It says that what he has promised will happen. It says that he will never leave nor forsake you. It says, here's what it says, that his steadfast love endures forever and ever and ever and ever because he is Yahweh. So this morning, we have two things that we need to take care of. First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to be thankful. And not just in my heart, not just quietly, but exuberantly. See, the scripture says, give thanks, which means verbal, which means corporate thanks. It's not just a, yeah, I'm thankful. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, things are a bummer now, but I'm just trying to deal with it and get through it. No, 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 no. Give thanks. He is Yahweh. All that he is, he is to us. His steadfast love endures forever. We give thanks. Of all people, Christians should exuberantly give thanks. We have a redeemer, a creator, a sovereign, a provider. So as we come to Thanksgiving, of course, this is in light of that. But it's not something we're to do once a, once a year. In all circumstances, Paul says, in every day, in every time, in every way, we are to give thanks. But perhaps you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus. You've never recognized the truth about yourself that you indeed, by Scripture, are a sinner and spiritually dead and on your way to hell. And maybe you're here this morning and you're just ready to acknowledge that. And you're ready to find in God and in Jesus, His Son, the Redeemer, the rescue that you need from that. i got to tell you, you will have the greatest thanksgiving that you've ever had if you will come to a point where you receive Jesus as your Savior. You will never have a more exciting thanksgiving. And I can speak about that. I can address that firsthand knowledge. The year was 1990. I had just become a youth pastor. Mona and I had moved from Salem, Oregon, down to Rogue River, Oregon, down by Grants Pass. We were excited. Kara was 18 months old. Mona was pregnant with Courtney. And and we were just, this was one of those, you know, seasons of life, the spring years, you know, springtime years. And and, and it was very exciting. And my parents and my grandparents And I think both aunts and uncles were coming to our house for Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving Day of 1990. And for the first time since ever as a little boy all the way up to that time, for the first time as we gathered around the Thanksgiving table, I read a passage of Scripture, but then my grandpa prayed. My grandpa You need to know, my grandpa growing up did not know Christ as his Savior. He refused to know Christ as his Savior. My grandma would go to church by herself, and I'd watch her in church every Sunday, tears coming down her cheeks because she was sad for her husband who didn't trust in Jesus. But you see, years earlier, he had smoked. And somebody at church one day told him, you can't smoke and be a Christian. And my grandpa said, they had no right to talk. If there ever was a hypocrite, it was them. 
and he never stepped foot in church again. I can't, I never remember a time when I saw him in church unless it was a Christmas program that us kids were in. So May of 1990, he knew something wasn't right with his head and he asked my dad to come over. And my dad had the incredible privilege of leading my grandfather to Jesus Christ. And on Thanksgiving of that same year, I still get teary-eyed. It was incredible, the change in my grandpa. I was always scared of him as a kid. He was a grumpy old grandpa. And I watched my P's and Q's around him. But at that Thanksgiving, I had never seen anyone more thankful. And to have him pray over the meal, oh, wow, God is so good. See, what happened is my grandpa understood the chesed of God, that God's love is steadfast, it is strong, it endures forever. And that's my wish for you today, friend, if you've not trusted in Jesus as your Savior. Would you bow with me in prayer?